God is sovereign in the universe, and he sets rules that way. Uh, so when people try to obey God, and those who are in seats of authority in this world especially, mistreat them, they're blaspheming God. That's why he says our blood cries out from the altar, I think it's Revelation 10, or to the altar, because of the persecution. And that persecution is going to come again. It's ratcheting up as we speak. Verse 8, if you fulfill the royal law, not the nasty, dirty Old Testament law, but the royal law, <laughs> the law of Almighty God, according to the Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you do well. That means the what? What is the royal law? Well, loving your neighbor as yourself was what was said in the Old Testament. It's what Christ brought forth in the New Testament. And then he quoted a bunch of the Ten Commandments when he said that in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. So the royal law is the Ten Commandments, the law of God. And he only quotes half of it here, loving your neighbor as yourself. Down a little later, he'll say loving God as well. So he mentions both elements of the royal law, loving God and loving your neighbor. I was in some meetings this last week uh, regarding trailer parks and the problems that uh, are built in therein because you have a lot of people living together and then you have managers who are trying to keep things according to law, trying to keep things peaceful and in order in the way they ought to be. And boy, did everybody have problems. And I was just sitting there thinking, you know, all these problems would simply go away if everyone would love his neighbors himself. All the fights, the chicanery, the accusations that, were, that those managers and a couple of just people who lived in parks were there. And both sides had all kinds of problems they were fighting and most of it was just plain old human nature. Uh, I, I could almost say all of it was just plain human nature. Not loving our neighbor as ourself, and being selfish and greedy, and lustful and envious, and all those things. Anyway, that's what he tells us to do, is love our neighbor as much as we love ourselves. But if you have respect to persons, you commit sin and are convicted of the law as transgressors. So, he makes us stronger here. You know, he started out by saying not to have respect of persons, but here he says, if you do it, it's a sin. Now, what's the penalty of sin? Death. So, uh, showing respect one above another and making those judgments can be a sin uh, unto death. He'll talk here a little bit about, uh, about judgment and so on. Uh, he's introducing it here, that it is a sinful thing, and he'll, he'll, nail, he'll nail it down here in a little bit. For whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. Then he starts talking about the royal law here, uh, and it says right here in context what the royal law is. It isn't the nasty Old Testament law of sin and death. It is the Ten Commandments. For he that said, Do not commit adultery, said also, Do not kill. 
Now, if you commit no adultery, yet if you kill, you are become a transgressor of the law. So any one of the ten you break uh, means that you have broken them all. You, you can't, well, even Colossians 2 says that the tenth commandment, not coveting, is the same as idolatry, the first law. Because when we covet, we want something that is our neighbor's, and we're wanting something that God says we should not have. So what we are doing is saying, God, you're wrong. I want what my neighbor has, and therefore we're committing idolatry by putting our desire and our want for somebody else's property ahead of God. So coveting is idolatry. And that uh, James says the same thing Paul did. If you break one, you break them all. So speak you, and so do, verse 12, as they that shall be judged by the law of liberty. So it is a royal law, and it is a law of liberty as well. Well, now, the law restricts you, doesn't it? I had had people argue in the past that the Ten Commandments are negative. No, they're positive all the way through. You shall not kill seems to be to somebody negative. Why? Does he want to kill? <laughs> I consider it a positive that God instructs him not to kill me. I, I think that's a very positive law. That nobody is allowed to go around killing each other. Isn't, isn't that positive? Good for me and good for you. Now, it may... It may indicate restraint there from doing what human nature sometimes wants to do, but it's a positive thing. Verse 13, For he shall have judgment without mercy that has showed no mercy, and mercy rejoices against judgment. Now, mercy is a very, very important thing. God stresses over and over how His mercy endures forever. So, this is echoing the words that Christ Himself said in the Sermon on the Mount, that if you forgive others, I'll forgive you, but if you don't forgive others, I will not forgive you. If you show mercy, I will show mercy. If you show, don't show any, you won't get any. That's why we strive to be as merciful, as patient as we can, and yet there are some things God says that do not deserve mercy. There are some things that people can do where it cannot be allowed. I mean, God is that way. He will show mercy, and He will show mercy, and He will show mercy, and then when things get to a certain point, He withdraws it. Uh, there will be some in the lake of fire. Isn't that what He says? There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Not very many, but some. So, those are people who are intransigent, who won't get over their anger, their misery, their uh, bitterness, their hate, their judgment, who will not show mercy to others. God says He will not show them any mercy. So, even though His mercy endures forever, it doesn't endure for every person forever. Uh, he does not indicate He's going, in fact, to show mercy to Satan and his demons. Uh, they have gone beyond 
the point of mercy because they have been evil toward all the other inhabitants of the universe, the angels, the 24 elders, God himself, and they have made them enemies of us. And God said, no, that's the end of that. You're going into darkness forevermore. So, we need to be very, very careful. How can we have true faith in God and trust Him if we judge and condemn others? That's lack of faith. What we are saying when we get down and negative on others and put them down is we're saying, God, you don't know how to do your job. You don't know how to save that person. You don't know how to bring that person to repentance. I have looked at what I think they are, and I've made a judgment. They're of Satan the devil. <laughs> and since that's my judgment, uh, that must be true. Well, where's faith in God that God can take that person and turn them around? Have you ever heard of the Great Tribulation? He says that 90% of the church is going to go into tribulation. And then he says about a third of those people in that tribulation will repent, will turn around. So is he capable of taking care of them? Yes, he is. So who are we to judge them in present circumstances and say, you're ungodly and unholy and I'm going to consign you to the lake of fire? In attitude, whether we do, whether we say those words or not, uh, character assassination and stabbing in the back is spiritual murder. Uh, and we can't make those judgments because that is murder and that is unmerciful and it is unkind and unforgiving. And if we persist in having those judgments and those attitudes toward people, he says he won't have mercy on us. What does it profit, verse 14, my brethren, though a man say he have faith and have not works, can faith save him? Many Protestants teach you don't, need to, you don't have to have works. It's just, just grace, just God's forgiveness, and you don't have to have works. Well, what does James have to say about it here? Paul wrote some things hard to be understood, Peter said. And you can take the things Paul wrote, and you can wrest them out of context and not understand what Paul was trying to say. But James doesn't write that way. James is pretty straightforward. And he was as converted as Paul was, I'd say. Uh, all the apostles were teaching truth. So let's see what James says. Uh, Without works can faith save you. If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food... And one of you say to them, Depart in peace, be ye warmed and filled. Notwithstanding, ye give them not those things which are needed to the body, what does it profit? Even so faith, if it has not works, is dead, being all by itself or alone. He uses a very, very good example there. Someone has a need. They're hungry. They're a brother or a sister. And you won't feed them. And you say, be warmed and filled, have faith in God, He'll take care of you. I don't have to do works. I don't have to serve. I don't have to give. God will take care of you. Well, is that God's attitude? <laughs> no, He says, faith, if it has not works, is dead. 
Dead faith. What good does dead do you? We see a dead animal, a dead human being. No life in them anymore. They don't talk, they don't walk, they don't speak, they don't eat. They're gone. Totally gone. There's nothing there. Now faith, without works, is just like a person who is dead. They're not around anymore. Yes, a man may say, you have faith, but I have works. So there are others who say, well, I have works, and therefore I'm justified. Show me your faith without your works. So there are people who serve a lot, and they do a lot for other people, uh, and they judge themselves righteous because of their works. And that also is a wrong approach. A lot of people brag about how much they serve and how much they do and how much they give to others and all that kind of stuff. They, they like to pat themselves on the back and, and try to get others to pat them on the back about how much they serve. Well, that service does no good unless it has with it true faith in God. So they say, show me your faith, but you don't have any works. And then James says, I will show you my faith by my works. So works are required, and faith is alive if it is something that does something. As I said, the dead person can't do anything, can't even speak. Someone who is alive can actually do something about a brother or sister who has a need. They can help. They can give food. They can give encouragement. They can do a lot of things for somebody if they're alive. And faith is the same way. It has to be living, and it has to be demonstrated by works. Otherwise, he says, it's dead. You can say you, have, you, can say you love God, and you can say you have faith, but you never do anything for anybody. Well, Christ said, that if you're that way, he says, I won't know you. I don't even know you. Because you're telling your brother or your sister to take care of themselves. I can't help you. He says, how you treat others is how I will treat you. How you judge others is how I will judge you. So we have to do for people the same, with the same attitude that God does for us. Now when we're in need, what do we do? We cry out to God, don't we? And we expect Him to help us. Well, when people ask us, they're looking to us because they think we might be able to help, and they have a certain expectancy of help. But if we say, ah, nah, God will take care of you, then we're not in a godly attitude. You believe that there's one God. Is that enough? Can you say, well, there's only one God. I believe in God. Well, that puts you in good company, I guess. <laughs> he says, you do well. The devils also believe and tremble. You're, if, you, if you believe there's one God and you believe in God, well, that puts you up equal to the demons. puts you up equal to Satan. He knows there's one God. That's not enough. 
Having faith that there is a God, believing there's a God, is not enough. Even the demons believe that. But will you know, O vain men, that faith without works is dead? So what he's saying is Satan's attitude is Satan knows there's a God, but he will do no good works. He's not going to do anything for anybody except try to destroy them. He tried to destroy the Father and the Son and the holy angels, and he's been trying ever since man was put on the earth to destroy man, so that not one is saved alive. He wants total destruction except for himself and his demons. So yeah, he believes in God. He fought God, and he got put down. So he, he has no doubt there's a God. But he has no works of righteousness. He won't do anything good for anybody. Now, he'll do things for people that might seem to them to be good. Just like he did to Adam and Eve. He offered them some fruit and says, this is good. This will help you. This will be good for you. You'll know the difference between good and evil. You'll be like God. You'll know everything. So he, what he offered them sounded good. But how did it turn out? Was it good for them in the long run? No. So Satan can make things look really, really good to a human being. But you better believe that if it isn't along God's line of thinking, uh, it'll turn out bad for you. So Satan seems to give good gifts. He's very deceitful and subtle and sly. But he has no good works, even though it might seem there is a deadly, nasty motive behind everything he do does that appears good. What if he worked it out so you could get the win the lottery? Think he could do that? Possible. Do you think winning the lottery would probably improve your life and your spirituality and your chances of getting into the kingdom of God? Highly doubtful. Then he goes on to give an example how faith without works is dead faith. It means nothing. Verse 21, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he had offered Isaac his son upon the altar? Would it have worked out for Abraham if he had said, Well, God, I know you want me to sacrifice Isaac and I kind of... I can kind of understand why you'd want me to do that, but but I, how about tomorrow? <laughs> how about next month? Uh, maybe you'll change your mind. No. Abraham believed there was a God. He believed that God had his best interests in mind. Now, if, if God had approached you like this and said, I want you to go sacrifice your son. Well, take your daughter along too. Get rid of her while we're at it. Uh you might think that that voice or that dream or that vision or, or however it came was from Satan. You would reason that God would not have you kill your own child, wouldn't you? You, you would doubt where that message came from. But Abraham knew God. See you how faith worked with his works, and by works was faith made perfect. Abraham believed God, and when 
that voice came from God, he said, okay, I'll go do it. Now, he had a relationship with God that was deep enough that he perceived and knew that that message was from God, not Satan. There are people have, who have visions and dreams, and those are recorded in the Bible, that were not of God, but they thought they were from God. I think we'll see some of that in this end time as well. There has been that already, of people that dreamed things and had visions and thought they were from God, and they weren't. Because they themselves were not in the attitude they ought to be in to receive something from God. And then there are those who have in the past, and will again in the future, have visions and dreams that indeed did come from God. Now what does he tell us to do? He says, go to my word, and read my word, and see if what you heard or dreamed fits with the word of God. It better fit that, or it didn't come from God. That's the test. That's how you figure it out. And if you're not in a godly attitude, uh, then it's questionable. Verse 23, And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God, and it was imputed to him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. Now, there were not very many people called a friend of God in the Old Testament. That was a very, very rare occurrence to be called a servant or a friend of God. Now, Christ offered you and me, all of us, not just a very, very few, he offered all of us friendship right there in his last uh, teaching before he died. He told him, I'll tell you everything and you'll be my friends. So once he gives us his spirit and puts us in the body of Christ, he calls us friends. Uh, I used to think at times, wouldn't it be neat to have such a relationship with God like Abraham had, where God would call you his friend? Well, he's offered us that kind of intimacy. Uh, New Testament, the New Testament promise and covenant was of eternal life, and it was of spiritual marriage with Christ. He offered physical marriage in the Old Testament, but he never offered eternal life except to a very, very few who are in Hebrews 11. That came in the New Testament. So he only offered friendship to a very, very few. Now he's offered it to all of us. That is oh, such a high honor that we could be called the friends of God. And we need to be good friends. You see then how that by works a man is justified and not by faith only. Well, they, the two have to work together in order to promote spiritual life. Likewise also was not Rahab the harlot justified by works when she had received the messengers and had sent them out another way. She could have said, no, I think your God needs to save you. You're a bunch of Israelites. What are you doing here? No. She recognized Israel. She recognized the men. And she helped them. She was doing that at peril of her own life. I hope we understand that. Had they caught her hiding those Israelites, they would have killed, they'd have chopped her head off right now. She wouldn't have lived another minute. 
because they looked upon Israel as their enemies. And if you help aid and abet the enemy, that's treason, and you die right now. It's supposed to be that way in this country, but it isn't anymore. For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. So the analogy I used a little earlier about someone being physically dead who can do nothing, uh, James uses the same thing down here. I'd kind of forgotten that. So the body without the spirit in man that God gives that imparts life and breath, uh, if it's dead, faith and works are the same way. If we don't have works, we might as well be dead spiritually because it's the same. Now on into uh, chapter 3. My brothers, be not many teachers, knowing that we shall receive the greater condemnation. So, he says that very few are supposed to be teachers, uh, spiritually speaking, in the church. And yet we have those who believe, I had someone tell me not too long ago, that we're all apostles. Because all apostle means is one sent. Well, that's wrong. Uh, an apostle is one sent for a specific job. If all are apostles, then where are the prophets and evangelists and teachers and, and others? If everybody's an apostle, that's the highest job given there in 1 Corinthians 12. Well, where do you find any prophets and evangelists then? If everybody's an apostle, it doesn't make a bit of sense. It's one sent to do the work of an apostle. Just a Greek uh, definition of a word is without context. The context has to be applied to it, otherwise it's just a word. And it, people misapply things. So in, in saying that, and, and there are others like that that believe the government is from the bottom up, that uh, we're all teachers. Well, God says not to be many. There aren't to be many. There are to be a few. Where do, where do people twist things out of context so badly that they think that God governs from the bottom up? I can't even imagine the angels going up to God and telling Him what to do. It just isn't the way the universe works. He is sovereign over all, and He isn't ruled by anybody else. In fact, there's plenty of scriptures that say don't, don't question Him. And when people question Moses or Samuel, God said, Oh no, they're not questioning you, Samuel, or Moses. They're questioning me. So he takes it personal. Let's not get into all that, but it, it should be so obvious that anybody that believes differently than that is twisting things completely out of context. For in many things we offend all. If any man offend not in word, the same is a perfect man, and able also to bridle the whole body. So, he's going to introduce the tongue here and the damage it can do. And he says, there shouldn't be many teachers. Uh, one of the reasons is, a teacher is put in a position of authority, and he influences others, and he also receives a greater condemnation or a stricter judgment. To whom much is given, much is required. So, he says we are not to presume a position and take it upon ourselves and presumption is the same as witchcraft which is the same as Satanism 
so he says, if we presume to make ourselves teachers, we are satanic. And we'll receive the greater condemnation. To be a teacher in God's government, you have to be put there by God and even through uh, the ministry that he has uh, ordained. What did the apostles do? What did Paul do? He told Timothy, an evangelist, to ordain elders. So that's how elders came to be. It was that the apostles told the evangelists who did not outrank them but were under the apostles to ordain elders under themselves. So appointing to be in a position of teaching or the ministry uh, comes through the higher positions of the ministry. It's not something you can take on yourself. That is presumption. And he gives a very good reason for not wanting to be a teacher, although there's another place that says, you may desire to be an elder or a teacher, and that's, it's a good thing, they're good offices, but think carefully about it, because with that office comes a great responsibility and great accountability <coughs> and greater condemnation. So why would you want that position? Think it through. Because a teacher is is designed to talk. And in talking, through much words is sin. I think there's a proverb that says that, almost those words. Behold, we put bits in the horse's mouths that they may obey us, and we turn about their whole body. horse weighs about 12, 13, 1,500 pounds, and you can take just a little half pound of metal, and you can make that horse do almost anything you want, if he's been trained. Uh, turn their whole body. Something even bigger, the ships, which though they be so great and are driven of fierce winds, yet are they turned about with a very small rudder wherever the captain or the governor decides. You just turn that wheel, turn that rudder, and the ship changes direction, huge as it is. Even so, the tongue is a little member, and boasts great things. Behold, how great a matter a little fire kindles. Just a whispered word, just a word said out of context, a word said out of meanness, and it can create hate and murderous attitudes, anger, stir up all kinds of problems, and a whisperer creates chief friends, best of friends, can be separated and divided from either by each other, by a whisper, a gossip, a comment from someone else that estranges them to each other. The tongue is a fire. What does fire do? It heats things, it burns things. And misused, it can destroy a lot. Tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. So is the tongue among our members that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature and it is set on fire of Gehenna. The tongue can cause people to go into Gehenna fire. That's how powerful it can be. Do we recognize that? Not day to day we don't. 
we something goes through our brain, we it just comes flying out our mouth. And we say things probably every day we should not say that cause harm and hurt and uh, offense to people. It just comes so naturally. For every kind of beast and of birds and of serpents and of things of the sea is tamed and has been tamed of mankind. You can train porpoises and dolphins and even whales to do tricks and various things. But the tongue can no man tame. It is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. Why? Where'd that come from? Well, because the human mind is deceitful and desperately wicked by nature. And the tongue only says what comes through the mind. It's, it's what vocalizes in a way that somebody else can hear what you're thinking. And so often, our thoughts come out our mouth. Uh, that's why it's deadly, as it reflects what is in the head. Now, if you learn to bridle or, or keep your tongue quiet, uh, that does some good because it doesn't affect others as much. But if you still got that rot going through your head, uh, that's bad too. Because thinking it is evil, just as doing it is evil. Christ made that plain in the Sermon on the Mount. But if you think evil, uh, it's, it's just as much sin as doing evil. So, we, we can blame it on our tongue, but it's our brain that uh, activates the tongue, for good or for evil. People say, think before you speak. Well, we should. And sometimes there's not much thought there, but it must have been an evil thought, whatever it was, even if only for a split second it was an evil thought because the tongue said it. The tongue can't activate without some stimuli from the brain. Uh, People talk like they don't have a brain in their head, but that brain is what's activating that tongue. So if it comes out the mouth, uh, that's what's in the heart and the mind. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So what you are inside, your heart and mind, is what your tongue says. So if it's evil and down and negative and putting other people down, then that means your mind is evil. You have trouble controlling your tongue? Well, you're also having trouble controlling your mind. Verse 9, Therewith bless we God, even the Father... And therewith curse we men, which are made after the similitude of God. Now, what's the logic in that? We'd be scared to death to say the things about God we say about our neighbors and friends and relatives, wouldn't we? We'd be scared to death to say those things to God. And yet, He made us in the image of God. And He says we are to become God and have that potential. And yet, we think nothing of desecrating another human being or putting them down. He says, Out of the same mouth proceeds blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not so to be. You cannot bless God and curse man and be righteous. It's impossible. Verse 11, Does a fountain send forth at the same place sweet water and bitter? No. No. Can you put lemon juice in a glass and drink out of one side of the glass and get 
a sweet water taste and out of the other side of the glass tastes like lemon? No, once you put the lemon in there, it all tastes like lemon juice. Doesn't taste, you can't get sweet and sour out of a glass of lemon juice. I don't care if you put honey and lemon both in there. <laughs> you can't yield salt water and, well, it's, I'm getting ahead of myself. Verse 12, can the fig tree, brothers, bear olive berries? Well, no, I've never, I've never seen that, have you? I've never seen oranges growing on an apple tree either. So can no fountain both yield salt water and fresh. If it's got salt in it, it all tastes salty. It gets mixed completely in the water. Who is a wise man and endued with knowledge among you? Let him show out of a good conduct his works with meekness of wisdom. So he's talking about faith here. He brought up wisdom in the first chapter. If you, if you don't have wisdom and understanding of how to act and what to say and how to use your tongue, uh, then you have a problem. So he says you can't, you can't be godly and speak good of God at the same time you speak evil of men. Can we grasp that? Well, I think we can sit here intellectually and grasp that. What can we do about it is the question. What can we do about it? Can we bless God and man? Or can we curse God and curse man? You can't love God and say blessings to Him while you curse man. God says that's not righteous. It won't work. If you have bitter envying and strife in your hearts... Do we envy others? Do we wish we had what they had? Do we have strife, discontent, upset in our hearts? Anger, bitterness toward other people. If we have that, we are ungodly. Those are not godly emotions. Those are the works of the flesh. Bitter envying and strife in your heart. Glory not and lie not against the truth. Don't deceive yourself that you're godly when you've got bitterness and anger and accusation and hurt and malice and negativity in your heart for other people. If you think you can be that way and still be godly, you're deceiving yourself. This wisdom descends not from above, but is earthly, sensual, and devilish, satanic. If we have an attitude of strife, anger, hurt, misery, hate, those are satanic attitudes. They're not godly. For where envying and strife is, there is confusion and every evil work. Now, God is not the author of confusion. So, when people strive with one another and hate one another and judge one another and condemn one another... God is not there. That's an evil work. It's a satanic work. So we need to be very, very careful that we don't imbibe in those things and don't let ourselves go there. But what, what comes from God? The wisdom that is from above, not earthly wisdom, not satanic ways of doing things and His understanding, 
the wisdom from God or from above is first pure, then peaceable, peaceable, as opposed to strife and confusion and anger. So God's wisdom is peaceable and gentle and easy to be entreated, willing to listen when we are corrected. Full of mercy, full of mercy is God's wisdom. And good fruits without partiality and without hypocrisy. Doing, serving, giving, loving, and not being hypocritical about it. The fruit of righteousness is sown in peace of them that make peace. Christ told us to be peacemakers. Here James says makers of peace. Same words, same, same effect. The fruit of righteousness is peace, not war, not strife, not bitterness, not anger, and so on, of them that make peace. Well, we're a few minutes early, but I, I think I'll stop there with chapter, end of chapter 3, and pick the rest up at another time. So, 